it's beautifully English, but it's also like, I don't know, what is he, fucking 11? He doesn't know shit. Welcome to Watching Movies at the Barbie. Get it? It's a grill. Uh, ah. Is this, this your real intro or is this a practice run? Unclear. I think oh. it's real. All right. I like it. This is a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. Movie. Anyway, that's the end of the Australian accent. I'm Bethy Squires. And I'm Thomas Grabinski. And as I was watching this movie, we're talking about Picnic and Hanging Rock here, people. Uh, classic Australian new wave cinema. And um, I have a problem that I have, uh, like, maybe too many mirror neurons or something, but I'm always picking up accents as I explore the world. Like today, That doesn't sound like a problem. That sounds like an asset. It makes me seem like a dick, though, I think, because I'm sure it sounds like I'm making fun of people, but it's just like a, uh, like, I yawn when you yawn. I say no when you say no. It's just how it, ha- how it goes. Yeah, that's, um, that's great. I'm trying to think of my, my, my greatest cultural touchstones for an Australian accent. And I think, unfortunately, it is Kangaroo Jack. I think, uh, you know, when that movie came out, I was kind of the right age right demographic for it you you show me that that jerry bruckheimer tree i'm there on top of that you got a kangaroo uh and and misleading advertising that makes me think the kangaroo talks uh that's a movie for me i've still never seen kangaroo jack it is fucking insane it is like a, a a really deranged nihilistic movie um so so that movie was greenlit as an R-rated comedy. It was basically like this 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 bleak, goofy goodfellas uh with a kangaroo and instead of money it was it was cocaine and the whole thing was supposed to be for adults and then as sometimes <laughs> happens there are there are producers and executives who intervene when they realize that this is a, a premise for children. Um, and so there are like these weird vestiges of like really perverted jokes for grownups mm-hmm. in a PG movie for children. And so it just feels like at every turn there are omissions, which gives it a, a special cadence. Anyway, I, I would like to talk about Kangaroo Jack on another episode. Yeah, I feel like Kangaroo Jack is your Twilight Breaking Dawn part two. Like the the one that the more you find out about how it was made and like the the, you you are at first confronted with what a product that feels inevitable, but then you see all the different things that happen to get there, and it just sort of winds up like transfixing your dreams in like an almost Lovecraftian way. Oh yeah, I I think that's a great way to characterize it. The only difference is that I would say Kangaroo Jack is not my Twilight Breaking Dawn Part Two. Kangaroo Jack is uh, my Godfather. Ah yes, I'm so sorry. Everyone's Godfather, really. But we are talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, and it is actually a touchstone of the Australian New Wave. Um, I was reading up on it, and it was like primarily or, like a lot um, government funded. And I was thinking about how America would never pay for a movie besides funding the military to like rent tanks to a Marvel movie. <laughs> That's the closest that we get to like sponsoring films. Absolutely not. I also think you know Picnic at Hanging Rock is sort of obtuse and impenetrable in in a way that uh, Americans do not like uh, and, and and that's not even me speculating I think there's plenty of data to suggest that Americans when watching movies like answers and like neat resolution and this sort of refuses that at every turn although there was a definite answer written in the original book but then her publisher the the lady who wrote it her publisher was like this ending is dumb get rid of it <laughs> Let it be a vague, ineffable question rather than a slightly silly answer. And that's really interesting because Joan Lindsay, the yeah, the woman who wrote the original novel in the 60s, was pretty cool 
um, in the wake of its release. You know, the the book opens with a preface that suggests that the events of the novel may be true, may be false, that it's ultimately up to the reader to decide, which by contemporary standards is not a particularly odd writerly flourish. People love to do that now. But in the mid-60s, people read that and they thought, oh, is this... Is this true? Is this a document of an actual disappearance? And the thing Joan Lindsay did that was so fucking rock and roll is when people would ask her in interviews uh, if if the story was in fact true, she would just refuse to answer that question. And so it created this sort of endless search and fixation on the picnic at Hanging Rock with people looking for corroborating news articles to see, did young girls actually go missing uh, at a natural formation? Um, and the answer, I think, is no. But it, it it captured kind of the public imagination for a long time. Yeah, and there was hints that maybe parts of the book that were true were maybe more just like the the fraught emotional inner life of girls at a girls' school. It's like that really happened. The part where they uh, disappeared into a pink fog, less so. But <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But we're talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, which uh, in my notes I called a movie where the vibes are so immaculate, people disappear. It's just like people perish from excessive vibes. I I love that. I don't I don't know that I could put it better myself. I think um, to me, Picnic at Hanging Rock is a masterpiece. I really love this movie. Yeah, Becky and I have not actually talked about it before, so this will be interesting. But I think that Picnic at Hanging Rock casts a spell in a, in a way that not a lot of movies do. Um, I, look, I find I find many movies to be entrancing and, and spellbinding but i think picnic at hanging rock does a really peculiar job that kind of leads into something that again we haven't discussed yet that this this podcast is technically about like watching movies at a bar and you could watch this on mute or you could get a little tipsy and like go off about it and how you know civilization is a farce in in front of the spectacle of nature there's no way to like the idea of gloves when confronted with igneous rock is bullshit, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think what this movie does for me is that it's actually what I consider hangover cinema. Oh, interesting. There's some, there are some movies, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, honestly, all Sofia Coppola joints and, you know, Virgin Suicides is hugely indebted to this movie. Oh, yeah. uh, Linda, Linda, Linda is a Japanese movie about girls starting a girl band. All of these and the first Twilight are all like good. I'm gonna put this on and just sort of uh, get swept up in in being ethereal and not being able to focus. Like movies that are so mm, almost resistant to plot that it's okay if you like come in and out of it because so are the characters. They're also coming in and out of the experience. Totally. I think so much of this movie is operating on a level of affect such that even if you miss a bit, you still get kind of the macro vibe of the movie, which is the most important thing. Another movie that I think actually falls into that category, I watched uh, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven mm-hmm. last night, um, which is a little more graspable on a level of the, the plot and the humans of the movie, but it really is is a dream of a movie. When you finish, you're like, oh, I've just snapped out of something. I'm waking up. Do you, I tend to categorize movies as daytime movies or nighttime movies, like movies that are correct to watch during the day and movies that are correct to watch at night. Yeah. And uh, I I don't know if that's a thing that other people do. I I think I am probably unreliable in categorizing these because I love a daytime movie. I think I, I, I watch movies all the time, but as I get older, I, I find myself getting really sleepy if I start a thing after like eight o'clock. So I am probably the biggest proponent of the 10 a.m. coffee movie. I used to love going to the movie theater for the first show of the day on a Saturday just by myself with a cup of coffee. And that was like when I was, you know, best equipped to receive something. So for me, I think almost everything's (laughs) a daytime movie. Ooh, I think if I did that, um, I would go into a K-hole. Like, I have to talk to people early enough in the day or else I won't remember how to be a person interacting with the rest of society. Like, when I was little, I used to be really scared of the movie Fantasia because not because of, like, the big scary demon or, like, the weird furry centaurs, but because um, it was just so long without words that I was scared I would forget how human speech worked. And I was like, maybe it's always been this way. Maybe all my memories of talking are a lie. And I've just been watching this movie my whole life. 
Oh, that's fascinating. So I'm I'm honestly still kind of scared of Fantasia for that reason. <laughs> that I yeah, I never thought of Fantasia as having like an uncanny terror to it, but uh sounds like it might. Well, there's just like there's no words. The only humans are in silhouette, so there's no nobody's making eye contact with anybody. Uh nobody is speaking to anybody else. So it's like it's the pageantry of it. It's like really interesting artistry, but there's no it's not a very relational movie, and I think something about that would really set me off as a kid. And this movie doesn't, it's like the opposite of that. Like, it's a calming version of that for me. Right. I, though, I, you know, I to me, Picnic at Hanging Rock is a daytime movie, mm-hmm. not just because in in prepping for this, I watched it at 11 a.m. on a, on a Thursday. Um, but I think there is a way that Picnic at Hanging Rock is really kind of, it, it is calming in the way that you say it's calming, but I also find it to be really overwhelming in its implications and in a way that's kind of cosmically frightening. And the way that it's able to do that with this really light, almost painterly color palette and, and, and taking place mostly during the day, in these kind of controlled puritanical settings. I think that's an incredible feat. I mean, Picnic and Hanging Rock on paper does not sound very cool to me, but in execution, I think it's one of the most enrapturing movies ever made. This is interesting to me that that it is, you find the sort of cosmic implications troubling and I find them reassuring. And I don't know if it's just because I happen to be like a spooky girl. (laughs) So there's parts of this movie that just feel like my childhood of like, there is something about being like a young girl that feels like you are uh, closer to the nerves of the world that you're like in tune with something alive and and, like forceful and vibrant, at least in, in my experience. And that, and that, like, you can sense vibrations coming off trees or, like, affect, like, I used to think that I could, like, uh, affect the wind, like I was storm. <laughs> but, like, this idea, um, that I think Miranda says in the movie, uh, right before they, they fuck off into the rock that, you know, everything starts and stops at exactly the right time and place. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all part of a grand plan, cosmic scheme. Uh, and it seems weird, but like the idea of everything being in an ineffable balance is a thought that I've always found very comforting. Yeah. So to me, even the idea of like disappearing on the rock is not scary because it's like, oh, it's fine. The rock wanted me. That's fine. <laughs> I'll just become one with that. That's fine. Yeah, I think I actually ultimately am on the same page. But for me, the sort of like being troubled and being overwhelmed is is something that I need. I think especially after and and you know not to not to ground it too much, but after a year spent indoors and everything sort of feeling like rote and mechanical and mundane even with all of the terrifying things happening outside i think to be presented with ideas that are so much larger than my ability to conceive them is is something that i need just to break that cycle of monotony and picnic Mm -hmm. and hanging rock does that really effectively for me that's interesting i have felt closer to nature this year than i have ever in my entire life i've been pretty uh (laughs) pretty declaratively on the side of like fuck nature has been my my thesis statement a lot that i'm like i'm a i'm an indoor kid that's like that's my situation but um this year i have been like sitting on my porch a lot so i've been like getting really down with like the ecology of los angeles and like paying attention to like sunsets and like the squirrels that i'm kind of friends with now who live in our palm tree and and like making friends with the hummingbirds and like i'm getting a a connection to the cycles of like city nature but still nature that um i did not have in the fucking woods of indiana for sure yeah they say that a great way to sort of like ground yourself and find an internal peace is to like really situate yourself within your immediate kind of bioregion and to become familiar with the plant and animal life in your settings so that you're not just like bound to the people around you, but to all of the sort of varied elements of the world around you. Um, and it sounds like that's what you're doing, Bethy. 
And I think that, again, speaks to what I think we're going to talk big thesis statement now. What I think the theme of the movie is a little bit is the how silly civilization looks in contrast to the inevitability of nature of the world of of reality of animals of rocks yeah like it's a it's a gloves versus rocks movie and rocks win (laughs) oh yeah absolutely i think i think that the carriages and the parasols and the dresses and the sort of rigid formality that is expected of these schoolgirls in this place that is you know just millions and millions of years old is comical it's like yeah european civilization looks absurd in the face of nature's majesty it really it comes into focus even at the beginning of the movie so it starts the movie starts we should do just like a brief brief plot outline the movie actually starts with like a title card that almost situates it like it's gonna be more ripped from the headlines true crimey it starts with this title card that's like uh, four girls and their teacher dis- or three girls and their teacher disappeared on hanging rock on St. Valentine's Day. This is this is what happened, and we see the girls. Uh, they are reading Valentines that they wrote to themselves. I found out <laughs> in the book it's explained that mostly these are imagined Valentines that they have written to themselves from imaginary boys. But in and they're highly romantic. Yeah, they're extremely romantic, mildly horny, like nascently horny, I would say. And but in the in the movie, it reads more like they're writing these to each other, so it adds to the sort of uh, sapphic overtones of the whole John. And they're going to go on a picnic, and their really weird, uptight headmistress says that because it's especially hot today, like it's February, and February in Australia is like dog days of summer it's so hot it's like september in los angeles so in in light of that they will be allowed to remove their gloves once they get through town which is extremely titillating yeah. for and them. they're like they've never Ooh. had an opportunity like this <laughs> and the frenzied glove removing scene is incredible <laughs> oh yeah and then they so they go on the picnic the girls as the title card said the girls disappear also in the in the bush at the same time is a British kid, Michael, and his aunt and uncle, and also their like servant, Bertie. And Bertie and Michael see the girls and are like haunted by them. Perhaps for the rest of their lives, unclear. Even 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 haunted by the short and dumpy one, <laughs> as she is referred repeatedly. Yeah. So some of the girls uh go off on a little a little journey to like look around and they are uh, overcome by the mysteries of nature and are somehow subsumed by the mountain unclear intentionally vague and then the rest of the movie is people going what sort of at each other for the rest of it or occasionally going oh no but mostly just going i what do i do now (laughs) now that i know that something like this can happen what do i do how do i go on being a person (laughs) And that and that really is the whole movie. And you know, some of the some of the supporting characters um, are able to apply some perspective to this. They don't have total meltdowns, but of course, the headmistress is just completely overwhelmed by this disaster and her inability to control all things um, that she just completely unravels. She can, and you, and her unraveling is illustrated by she has. The wackest bouffant I've ever seen in my entire life. It's like <laughs> this like smooth as glass hair that she has like parted and made into a bouffant. And then it has these weird almost curtain bangs parts. And as she deteriorates, her hair becomes completely unraveled until she's like Azula near the end of Avatar The Last Airbender. She's just like her whole wig is jacked, which is a symbol if you will. Oh yeah. And this movie this movie is full of symbols. None <laughs> of them none of them hammy. I think the fact that this is Peter Weir's second movie is so fucking bananas. I think there are few flexes bigger than Picnic at Hanging Rock. And I think if you if you're aware of the context of this book, it becomes it becomes so much wilder because you know, like I said before, 
there really were people sort of speculating widely whether, you know, this is something that had actually happened to the point where it really kind of cemented itself as an element of Australia's national folklore. Um, and so for a filmmaker to take something that has become so culturally ingrained that is so elemental and manage to pull it off is 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 such a feat. And Peter Weir is incredible. I mean, we can we can talk about him more whenever it feels prudent in this episode, but I have a feeling that he'll be he'll be a recurring filmmaker on this podcast. Yeah, that feels likely. So we talk about how being a girl feels mystical. Oh, I did want to say another thing that lends itself to the symbology of it is how fake Australia looks. Australia looks fake. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like specifically the, the house that they use to be the girls' school looks just like plopped down like The Sims. It's this like British estate house in the middle of like on the edge of jungle, but in such a way that it just feels like so out of context in its place and like so not um I can think about how hot it would be in there. <laughs> With like oh God, yeah. all that stone, that stone's gotta collect. With heat. like the residual heat coming off that stone, and like those really high windows letting in like way too much light, and like the wood paneling inside not letting a single breath of air through. It it speaks to how stifling this part of Australian society is. Absolutely, and it's not you know as you've intimated, it's not a set it's not a it's not a building that they built they they scouted this location and and used it for the film and i think you're speaking to something really interesting which is that no matter how hard they try to sort of uh establish these sort of you know recognizable bits of of european culture it doesn't quite make sense in 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 the place where they are i mean it's not so different from a place like phoenix arizona building out concrete and building so much so that the entire desert floor is covered um, and can no longer collect rain it's like it uh it is not a sustainable operation um and the whole movie i think is about that kind of push-pull between um what what occurs naturally and what is transplanted and speaking of transplanted a lot of the characters in this story are british but they're just living in australia or like you know, there's one guy who is an Irish broke because he is a very recent immigrant. Uh, there's a, you know, Miss Headmaster Lady. She's British. Uh, Michael and Michael's aunt and uncle are British. And even though, and this happens also, uh, I, I'm a big fan of this show called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which is like one of you know a standard between the wars who done it show like a Poirot or a Marple but set in Australia in the 20s and um the the richer you are in that era of Australia the britisher you sound you just sound more english so there's this like huge gulf of experience that is uh telegraphed between like michael and birdie where like michael is speaking like a british toff he's got that rp accent and then birdie can't can't say an ah right no ah's in there and like has like that really nasal accent and the the buildings and the picnics that both like the titular picnic and then there's like two other picnics that like Michael's family take have this like we are plunked down in a place that we don't belong and the world is saying yeah okay sure let's try this <laughs> in and and it feels inherently anti-colonialist oh absolutely cuz it's it's very like you know, England is trying to assert its its Englishness on this place. And this place is like, there are some things you're just never going to get. You know, you're the empire that the sun never sets on. But there are rocks here that eat people. So you figure it out. Yeah. And it's 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 even more sinister than that, because the rocks don't give them the satisfaction of sort of dropping boulders and leaving corpses or concealing animals that will eat them. The colonizers literally just disappear <laughs> and there are no answers. And the rock formation says, fuck you. This is so beyond you. Even there's a scene Later, one of the girls is, I don't know, rejected by the mountain or returned by the mountain. Uh, That's Irma for anyone. Irma. Uh, any, any big heads following along. Irma gets found by Birdie. And the 
doctor and the policeman, like these two symbols of Victorian innovation, of, of like specifically British Victorian innovation. Like we invented cops, we invented, we invented doctors. And they, they don't even show the examination scene. They just show those two talking about, oh, I interrogated her and she doesn't remember a thing. Oh, I examined her and I don't understand what I'm seeing. And the doctor also keeps saying she's intact. She's quite intact, he says over and over again, which is one, gross. And two, to me, it was linked to how people think of this movie as impenetrable. That there's something about the girls that is impossible to penetrate. So she is quite intact and she is not giving up any of the mystery. You will never figure it out. All All of the experts in this movie cannot begin to have the vocabulary to describe um, what is happening to them, which is often often true as a viewer trying to describe what's happening in Picnic at Hanging Rock. I was, uh, I was looking at uh, Roger Ebert's review um, from, from not the time of the release, but when it was re-released. This was a hard movie to find for some time, <laughs> but... He's referring to a web-based critic named Kevin Maynard who said, This film is just too damn impenetrable for its own good. And Ebert said, Look, I'm sure he speaks for a lot of viewers, but of course, if you could penetrate it, there would be no film. Simply a police case or an account of an accident. And, and I think he's right. I think... I think Picnic at Hanging Rock is characterized by its unknowability. I, I think there is kind of an absurd mandate in contemporary cinema, specifically in American cinema, for clear answers and, and neat resolution. And obviously there are works in the independent space that buck that trend, but the fact remains. And the thing that to me that is so remarkable about Picnic is the way it just denies pedantry or clean resolution and instead just embraces the cosmic dread of unknowing, or in Bethy's case, the cosmic comfort of unknowing. Um, did you at any point, when you're thinking about how this movie is about sort of like inhabiting the unknown, residing, dwelling within the ambiguities, and that some things cannot be articulated with words, did you ever go, oh, fuck, I agreed to talk about this for an hour? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. But I also, you know, we're we're in this sort of like pre-patreon stage we don't owe people anything we don't have to deliver money we're just we're just getting on here and having a nice little talk i mean it's and hopefully we get somewhere hopefully we discover something yeah i think there's a difference between not knowing anything and for me i don't find comfort in not having the answer i find comfort in the idea of there being a greater system yeah to me it's more about the the part where we close up on the ants eating the cake and then later the glasses girl looks down and sees her friends and thinks like, what are these things? Like they are ants to her now. Like everything yeah. is as uh, impenetrable from a certain vantage point. And the idea of, uh, of all of those things being equally important, uh, equally purposeful and uh, equally like part of it, whatever it is. The ants are part of it. The girls are part of it. Uh, yeah. Michael is not um, part of it. Michael's not Michael part of it. Go. Michael's, he's an unwitting dope, but I kind of, I kind of like him. I think it's sweet as one of many characters trying to make sense of, you know, this, this, this larger weird cosmic system. I don't know. It's not, it's not a system. I think the point is that there is no graspable or articulable system, but um, yeah, the thing that Bethy was referring to if you haven't seen the movie before is shortly before these girls go missing um they start to speak in sort of strange lofty phrases and they're beginning to sort of transcend and have this perspective they've never had before they just you know go poof but yeah they're looking down at the picnic and one of them says oh look at those people just sort of milling around like ants they look so stupid but perhaps they are performing some larger function, even if they are unaware of it. Um, and yeah, I hope I hope that's true of me. I hope I'm performing <laughs> some function, whether I'm aware of it or not. So yeah, as, as we were saying, the four of the girls go explore the rock, and there's three of them transcend, and one of them is Edith. <laughs> Poor Edith. 
Uh, the short and dumpy sh- one, as described by Michael. I, I couldn't get over that. He's giving a, a statement to the police, and he keeps calling her the dumpy one. And at first, he and just like, like forgets to count her because she's like so fat as to be not important to him. Like he's like, <laughs> oh, she doesn't count. <laughs> that was like a weird log. Don't worry about her. Yeah, yeah. And then he tries to talk himself out of that hole by saying, "Oh, she was uh, she was lagging behind." But, you know, like I said, she's dumpy, so naturally. And we saw what he saw, and she was not lagging behind. She was actually first. She was the yeah. first one that he saw, but he was just like, no, not this one. Oh, the other ones. Um, going back to the, the Roger Ebert, Roger, Roger Ebert review, he says that in the book and in the movie, you're, you're not supposed to know what's happened. It could be ineffable, which clearly seems to be the way I'm leaning, uh, that, the rock ate them. Like, they became one with the rock. Don't worry about it. Um, there could be the, the, the true crime book that was like spun off of this one that was like the fan book, fan made book had ideas of like, it could have been aliens that abducted them. It could have been that they fell or it could have been that Michael and Bertie raped and murdered all of them was like one of the options. And there's no way. <laughs> No, there's I, I, there's nothing textual to support that. But I also, like, can you imagine being an egghead who engages with Picnic at Hanging Rock as a larger work? Something that is so centrally about its unknowability and being like, oh, let's postulate what happened. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not that something happened that you're not being told. It's... It's that you cannot know what happened. No one can know what happened. No, no, no. Uh, Everything happened. Don't, yeah. Right. It all, nothing happened. Everything happened. You get it. Fan theories have, have, have been here since time immemorial. I would pay money. I would, like, get on the Patreon or something for it for Cinema Sins to do a picnic at Hanging Rock. Oh my god. Fucking cinema sins. Jesus Christ. I think that could be conceptual art, the cinema sins of picnic and hanging rock. Yeah, I guess I think you would you would destroy cinema sins from the inside by convincing them to apply their completely unintuitive rubric to something like picnic and hanging rock. Yeah, this movie's got plot holes, guys. It's got fucking plot holes. That that is a problem. We have been saying this the whole time. That's been a, that is a problem with especially the uniquely American way of investigating, investigating the things that you watch and pay attention to. Like it's this movie is such a beautiful antidote to like Wandavision MCU. Like everything must be decoded. Right. Energy. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. Um alienate any marvel fans here but i do think picnic and hanging rock in in many ways is the antithesis of of that i I think nothing about the movie is is for you nothing about the movie is serving your interests it exists to challenge you and to kind of refuse satisfaction um at the same time it's it's a blast to watch. It's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. Like Bethy said, the vibes are immaculate, but like you're not you're not going to be satisfied when it's done. And and I think the hope is that that lack of satisfaction will be satisfying as a viewer. But I, I don't know. It's a tough one to talk about. <laughs> and yet here we are. Well, I want to go back to Edith because I was reminded. That some kids deserve to be bullied <laughs> when looking at Edith. Like, so you defend Edith first, but then you come back around think, to, to shove her in the mud. I think size shaming Edith is not the problem. Edith sucks for her personality. Edith sucks for who she is. And that's true fat acceptance. I can say this as a fat woman. Some of us suck just to be around. <laughs> There's also there's a there is a meta a, a meta element to this critique, which is that the the actor who played Edith was very annoying in her delivery, and so Peter Weir, without telling her, had another actor come in um, and basically ADR every one of her lines. So you are seeing Edith, but you are not hearing Edith. Yeah, and I have no problem with the Edith I'm seeing, but it's the Edith I'm hearing, which is intentionally she is supposed to be kind of annoying, like she's. So, uh, she's, like, so vexed in her body that she can't ascend, essentially. She is, like, trapped in her skin prison, 
And that's why she, the rock's never going to eat her because she is too concerned with the earthly flesh. It's just never going to happen for Edith. Never going to happen. But she's like, she's like whinging the whole time while the other three girls are like dancing in slow motion. She just keeps going, I'm tired. I'm so hot. I feel doomed. While, while they're like removing their clothing slowly and like spinning in a circle like Sufi monks. And she's like, can yeah. barely pay attention to it because she's so like sweaty. She's she's a weird sort of audience proxy who seems to exist in, in those scenes almost solely to remind us that what's happening is strange and that weirder things will soon happen. But like, we've got that figured out. I mean, the other girls are really cultivating this sense of foreboding from when they're reading the Valentines at the beginning to when Miranda says to her lover, Sarah, um you know, you you should find someone else to love. I, I won't be here for long. The movie opens with these really bright colors, but these young girls are saying such frightening things as if they know not what will soon befall them, but that something mm-hmm. is going to happen. And she, when she's, like, interrogated by the police, Edith doesn't necessarily have the most useful information. Like, she thinks it's funny that her teacher who has also disappeared and is now presumed dead. She's like, it's funny that she was kind of naked. I, that she's like, I can't be concerned for her. It's just funny that, that I saw teacher naked. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Um, there, there was, there was something in the Ebert review where he was talking about, I, I don't, I don't feel like the movie deals with adolescent sexuality quite as much as he does, but, but Ebert, Ebert has this idea that, um, the, the wild thing that happens to them at The Rock is at an intersection of sort of Victorian uh, opinions and attitudes towards sex and like the vast unknowability of nature and the way that those two things kind of collide. And I don't think that's entirely true, but I do think that there's something to it in the way that Edith is fixating on like the nakedness and the silliness of this. And they're talking about which girls uh, were found only in their drawers. I think there is something to that, but I don't know that it's like entirely central to the movie yeah i don't know if it's central but it's definitely a leitmotif throughout because there is like the homoromantic if not homosexual yearnings that sarah has for miranda uh in my notes i wrote down that sarah is being forced to stay at the school because she's too gay to go to a picnic right uh so i mean i'm not disagreeing with ebert (laughs) that there is definitely um a a flurry of Victorian sexuality at bubbling under the surface of the movie, but it is not necessarily, I don't think it is like the main engine by which whatever happens, happens. Yeah, it's just one of many human concerns that are at odds with and sort of interacting with the, the world outside. Uh, but Sarah is Sarah is a fascinating and and really tragic character, and I think in a more, I actually think there is a very conventional story about this school and about Sarah's relationship with Mrs. Appleyard that would be great mm-hmm. as just sort of like a Jane Austen adjacent drama. Like I, I think that character is really interesting. But she just sort of lives in the periphery of the movie, which I think is really cool. Like, there are so many great elements, but the movie just sort of refuses convention at every turn. Um, All of those pieces sort of come to a head in the scene where Irma briefly comes back to school to say goodbye to her friends. Right. They go to a barn, but the barn has on the side that it's the Temple of Calisthenic. But it is a Vulcan barn. Yes, the Temple of Calisthenics. (laughs) calisthenic singular i think one calisthenic it's it's incredible branding so emma goes back to the temple of calisthenic and she's gonna say bye and then her alleged friends who should be happy that she's alive like at first they say nothing to her but then edith (laughs) fucking edith like attacks her and says like you know what happened and it's obvious that she's like reaction formationings like i don't remember either but i'm i'm going to deflect off of my uh ignorance by pointing to yours and making it your problem now and she's like you you know what happened you should be explaining this to us and like the other girls 
like swarm Irma and like almost start attacking her Lord of the Flies style. And one of the teachers, the one who had been teaching calisthenic singular and like playing the piano, just like cowers behind her chair and like doesn't yeah. do anything to help. The, their French teacher stops it by slapping Edith. And that somehow calms the entire frenzy of girls. Um, and then it's discovered a little bit just to the side of all of this happening. Sarah's been strapped to a board this whole time to fix her posture. Yeah. And the, the teacher who'd been playing piano like shrieks, it's for her own good. And it's like a real culmination of the movie of, of there is a sense after the really long scene on the rock where the girls are, are vibing into oblivion, uh, that reaches sort of like a pitch when they all disappear into the rock and it, it ends uh, orgasms almost with, with Edith screaming and running away in fear. And then there's like a second culmination with that scene of like a similar level of like hysteria and like almost um, Suspiria 2018 frenzy to it i was just going to say that the uh calisthenics barn sequence is um it 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 has a a a horror quality that is not not far removed from suspiria um i I think i think that's one of the the scariest scenes to me but i also think it's one of the most perceptive i think the idea that these children uh who have been struggling with you know unresolution having no idea what happened to their friends they see someone who is the most likely person to have an answer to their questions even though she doesn't and they ultimately know she doesn't but they just attack her because they want resolution they want to just fucking put this thing to bed they don't care what the answer is but they're willing to you know completely alienate their former friend uh, and mob her and possibly murder her can, i think it would yeah, have in hopes there. that they can sleep better at night but i i do think that that is that's a that's a human thing and obviously this is the hyperbolic version but i think there is so much of look i'm not i'm not old enough to be waxing about you know being a, a really wise old person but i think there is so much that goes unresolved in adulthood i think you just sort of you know you, you you stop being friends with people you feel less connected to places and, and times and none of that um ever ends in a way that is really neat or with a bow and i think in a lot of ways picnic at hanging rock is about about that it's about children being confronted with um the unneatness of of adulthood and and life at large i can't remember if it was in the ebert review or in a different thing i was reading it might have been in the lit hub article that i was reading that was talking about women's role especially in victorian society of being like the moral upholders and also the maintainers of social norms that that women police each other and so a lot of, like, you know, Mrs. Alpayard at one point tells the girls to not be happy that Irma was found because there are still, like, um, three gr- women missing. So he's like, yeah. don't have feelings. I just want to be really clear right now. Do not have feelings about this. Like, that energy pervades the film. And, and even, like, with the policeman's wife, who's obviously been gossiping with, like, the other women of the town, saying, like, that sort of thing couldn't happen here and the the cop is like what sort of thing it's like well people people (laughs) from town wouldn't do that and the cop is like i don't i'm investigating this and i do not know what you're talking about like the the women of the town have obviously come to the conclusion that there was a horrible rape and murder but um and that's what they're operating on and so there's this as you were saying like there's so much about life that is messy but in Victorian society, Victorian British greater colonial society, uh, women's role as homemaker was also a imposer of order. And so this, this ineffable whatever is a direct threat to the one place of agency and power for a woman within Victorian society. Right. And that's, and that is ultimately Mrs. Appleyard's undoing because her, greatest concern as headmaster is just sort of controlling and dictating the optics of her school and her students. And suddenly this is just 
impossible for her to manage. And 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 it's it's like the the example that you mentioned where she says great Irma's back but it's almost worse that one of them is back because then it begs the question where are the others rather than it just being relegated to this realm of um you know total unsolvability um and it fucks her up she can't control it it's like uh I don't know I think about maybe this is too personal but I think about like my mom I have five siblings and when we would go to church every Sunday my mom would like desperately want all of us to like look good and and represent the family um because in turn it would sort of make my mom and dad look good like they're good parents but like you can't you can't do that. You've got like a six-year-old kid and a three-year-old kid and they're going to look stupid and they're going to look messy. Like there are some things that are out of your control. Um, and Mrs. Appleyard is being confronted now with variables that she just can't, she can't rein in. And I think that's where, where sexuality comes into it is, I don't think it is, as we were saying, I don't think it's like the main engine of what happens, but it is one of the most uncontrollable things in in this human nature and in teendom that the fact that this happens to three teen girls and their one lesbian coded math teacher speaks to who, who like almost gets horny explaining rock formations at the beginning. Like she does get sexual about just the notion of time. The idea Her of performance time. is so cool. I love it. She's so, she's so, she's so strange and kind of otherworldly that, um, that actually uh, is it cues my favorite line in the whole movie, which is she's explaining the age of this rock formation and the age of the volcano. Um, and one of the girls who's about to go missing says, a million years old, waiting a million years just for us. There's just something so ominous and kind of dreamlike about all of that. I, I love it. And at first it sounds like stupid. Like a child's lack of perspective. It sounds perspective. really stupid. But then, right. But then when she is ineffable into the rock formation, it was like, well, maybe the rocks were waiting for her. Maybe she was right. Yeah. There's a larger cosmic purpose that is not bound by our concepts of what is stupid. Like, clearly it makes sense to the big fucking rock. <laughs> I think that... That's something that this movie doesn't necessarily touch, but is something that I think uh, this year has brought home is uh, just because something is dumb or silly doesn't mean it's not like life altering and like huge and monumental. Like so much of life is huge and stupid at the same time, like just utter nonsense. (laughs) Like uh I think a little bit that's Michael's tragedy in the movie is that he thinks that there has to be a grand narrative and that he's going to be thinking about this forever because he doesn't know that sometimes huge, terrible things just happen. Whereas Birdie has already been separated from his sister, who is Sarah. We find out like near the end, it's like, oh, they're long lost siblings who will never get to know each other. And, and is like, and that's like left hanging completely. So he's aware uh, that sometimes life is big and dumb and hurts. I, I yeah, I like. I, I know, I know you were goofing on Michael earlier, and he is a dork, and he looks silly in his little pants. But I do think, <laughs> I do, <laughs> I do think Michael is cool as a subversion because he is this young noble boy who is positioned as the hero. He really wants to climb Hanging Rock and figure out what happened to these girls, and very quickly you realize. There is nothing for Michael to do. There is no mystery for Michael to solve. He's just, he's hes helpless. No matter how well-intentioned, no matter how concerned, there is no opportunity for heroism there. Um, just another thing that makes Picnic and Hanging Rock a cool movie. It's, it's, a, it's really useful. It's illustrative in that way that uh, sometimes it's not great to make the tragedy about you, Michael. Oh, yeah. And, and that he'll take it forever. And he, he says something... When he's trying to get Birdie to take him back out to the rock about, uh, you Australians just let things happen. <laughs> he blames the whole event on the fact that it happened to Australian people, which is a beautifully English thing to say. <laughs> it's beautifully English, but it's also like, I don't know, what is he, fucking 11? He doesn't know shit. <laughs> but yeah, it, I think that my, uh, scorn for the character is, a 
compliment to how he was acted and like rendered and stuff. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, not not to veer too hard, but um Sofia Coppola and the first time I watched this movie, I couldn't believe how clear of an influence it was on the dreamlike vibe of virgin suicides and and the lisbon sisters and their ultimate undoing i think if i were to program a double feature with this movie it would have to be the virgin suicides i would love to watch these two movies back yeah. to back and and i say it's not a dig on the virgin suicides that it's like heavily inflected by it because it i don't know if there is a way to display the weirdly mystical sense of being a teenage girl. It just does feel like layered shots on top of each other. <laughs> like it just oh, feels yeah, like absolutely. a bunch of pans. Like I I was 13 once and I remember my life feeling like a series of pans across a vista. Uh my to to that end, my my the best thing that I read uh when I, I was looking into Russell Boyd who shot the movie because it has this 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 very dreamlike almost hazy quality and when i found out how he achieved some of the shots it made me laugh out loud which is that russell russell boyd uh to achieve the sort of dreamlike haze over many of the scenes is he would use bridal veils literal (laughs) bridal veils uh of varying thicknesses and he would just drape them over the lens and try a few different ones to see what would best achieve um, what he and Peter Weir decided was right for the scene. And I think that's amazing. I think that sounds uh, very scrappy and silly, but it's incredibly effective. And so on theme, because so much of the concern of the of the story is like what articles of Victorian nonsense the girls are or are not wearing at any given point. <laughs> and so, so oh. for that effect to be transmitted via an invention of victorial nonsense the bridal veil is so funny and like so on point if i were in college still studying the fucking liberal arts in a film theory class i would absolutely write a term essay on picnic at hanging rock and what it means to view so much of the film's action through a bridal veil it like like because the the point of identification then becomes really interesting right because like i don't know especially in that era to be married is this like inflection point of your life it's like what everyone wants to do and everything will be different after that so the idea that the whole movie is viewed sort of as the bride through this veil but seeing kind of the terror and unknowability of the world as it is and how it sort of refuses the promise of marriage i uh, there's something there. wait so do you think the camera is the bride or this movie is the bride are we seeing is the movie shrouded in a bridal veil or are we seeing the world through a bridal veil of our own uh civilization inflected need for meaning i think there are two different essays okay okay (laughs) but but yeah no to me i think that I, i i would probably um make the argument that the literal suturing process of the film is is the viewer through the camera, through the veil, becomes sort of a, a bride, and, and there's there's something there. But I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and read my Laura Mulvey and my uh, critical visions in film theory before I say anything else. So I just read uh, Mulvey like four days ago because I'm writing another one of those uh, video essays that I do for YouTube. Oh shit! About whether or not there can be a female gaze. I mean. Th- it's interesting. I, I don't want to get too into this as like a man, but I'm using Laura Mulvey's terms. I mean, I, a lot of times you'll see someone for like Entertainment Weekly write about like the female gaze or something without having read Laura Mulvey's original work. And the point that Laura Mulvey is making is that the male gaze is not about a man operating the camera or a man directing the film. It's about the society that hails the work and through which it's filtered. It is inherently male as a result of the patriarchy. It's not like a man staring or a woman staring. I, I just, I think that constitutes a misunderstanding of the male gaze, unless I'm wrong. No, you're right. It's just, it's the thing of like, people are always like, oh, Magic Mike, we fixed it. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's more complicated than that. The, the, the thing, the point is, is that the male gaze as 
conceived of by Mulvey objectifies in its desire and that a theoretical female gaze personifies with its desire. That it's about inventing story, creating context, uh, liking somebody for who they are and not disembodied shots of tushes. Right. Um, it's not really germane to this right now. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, that the female gaze is not simply pointing the camera at a, at a sexy big man. old dong. It's not that. I, I, there are plenty of other terms to describe what that's doing. And it is, it is subversive to sexualize men on film. But to say that it's the female gaze is kind of insulting to Laura Mulvey. Um, and her really incredible work. I mean, all of it is fascinating and still holds pretty strong in 2021. Oh, in the in the last chapter that got excised, I read that today. Uh, speaking of the the apparatus of Victorian clothing and etc., the the veils and the gloves, the the way that they the girls finally understand that they're in a mystical place is that they take off their corsets and throw them, and they the corsets are suspended in midair. Oh, that's kind of cool. And like the corsets just never land. They're like, oh. We're in a we're in a wormhole. Okay, I see what's happening now. Well, I'm gonna go jump into this pink fog. Feels like it's my destiny. Deuces. Yeah, that that just that makes me think of that final. I hope this isn't spoiler alarm territory, but that final shot of the witch, mm-hmm. where the women are just sort of ascending and and twirling through the air. Um, Picnic at Hanging Rock doesn't need one of those, but it can be cool. I think it's interesting that the movie decides to end with the tourism surrounding the disappearance of of people going and like looking for the girls still and getting their pictures with policemen and like the the last missing sign and there's like some more there's some wrapping up with the school but the very last thing is a close up on like the the fading poster of them of the girls who are still missing and closing narration which again brings it back into a place of much more uh like literal narrative explicable filmmaking and i think that's so interesting that that the choice was made to start with a title screen of just exposition and then end with closing narration where there hadn't been narration before right i don't get it but i'm into it <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it, to me, it speaks to, uh, like, an anticipated awareness of, like, the film's reception, right? It's like people, when there is not a neat resolution, something is rendered kind of immortal because it is just sort of a perpetual search for meaning. Like, you want to know what happened to these girls. And so I, I guess what's being illustrated there is, like, until... There is some resolution, which we know there will not be. People will continue to frequent this site and try to figure out what happened because there is just an inherent discomfort in not knowing. It almost reminds me kind of of like guided meditation. Hmm. Like the title screen sort of like talks you down into it. And then you have like a trip where you like see fantastical uh, lizards and rocks that eat people and... uh, housekeepers having sex you know all the all the things that are unknowable uh and then you're slowly brought out of it by the narration is like is waking you back up to the real world almost yeah yeah i think that's right peter weir had a quote um that articulates nothing we haven't said already but it's nice (laughs) to know that this was in his brain while making the film he said to uh, sight and sound magazine quote we worked very hard at creating an hallucinatory, mesmeric rhythm so that you lost awareness of facts. You stopped adding things up and got into this enclosed atmosphere. I did everything in my power to hypnotize the audience away from the possibility of solution. End quote. Which I really like. What a fucking project. Um, something that's something that I, I really liked also in doing some of my reading before this was that... Um, this movie, this movie had distribution in Australia. It was all set up, but when Peter Weir screened for American distributors, a very common response was one of frustration with regards to the lack of concrete answers. And one particular studio head, who Peter Weir will not name, 
got so angry at the film's ending because he felt that it gave him nothing that he hurled and shattered his coffee mug at the screen. <laughs> um, which which reinforces something that, you know, we'll say on this podcast time and time again, which is that Americans are dumb. And it's easy to think that we're living in a moment of kind of boring, homogenous appetites sometimes as it relates to film. But this is not new. There were like dumb studio guys back then, too, who were like, it's got to make sense. It's got to be neat. I think it also goes back to what we were saying a long time ago, that this is a podcast without answers, without emotional closure. uh, That's a brief respite from the rest of the world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to help you make sense of your life in any way uh, that will last beyond the confines of this podcast. But, you know, there will be a moment of clarity. If anything, maybe I'm cautioning that a search for meaning can be damaging after a while. If you're going to go Michaeling up the rock without a water pack and, you know, somehow they don't even show it, but he he somehow gets like a cut on his head. Like you don't yeah. see him get hurt, but he he comes out of it hurt. That sometimes if you need everything to have fixed answers, uh, your brain's going to eat itself because sometimes things are ineffable. Oh, absolutely. This is me just coaching my own anxiety. This is this is my uh, pep talk to myself. Hey, Bethy, I know you like there always to be an answer, but you have to figure out how to <laughs> like reside within ambiguity sometimes, bitch. Calm down. <laughs> This is advice that we all need. Um, If you're listening to this podcast right now, I urge you to take out your wrist uh, from wherever it may be hiding, look at your watch, and see if it stopped at 12 p.m. Did you read that uh, Joan Lindsay just didn't wear watches because they stopped around her? Like, that's why she, like, part of why she wrote it into the book is, like, she had some sort of magnetic juju that made watches stop? (laughs) That's fascinating. Yeah, what if Joan Lindsay was an ancient being who was imparting some sort of deep subconscious wisdom? It's as possible as anything else. I I didn't... The first time I saw Picnic at Hanging Rock, and maybe this makes me a fucking idiot, but I think I was so engrossed by that final run with Mrs. Appleyard where she, spoiler alarm kills Sarah and sort of melts down completely in in dealing with this overwhelm. When she is confronted with Sarah's death, her clock stops. It's Whoa. ticking loudly. I didn't notice this the I didn't first time. That. It's ticking loudly as it leads up to the confrontation, as she's working away, as she's drinking her whiskey, and when she is again confronted with Sarah's having died, this really loud background noise just stops. And suddenly she's confronted by that silence. And I think there is something I don't quite grasp about what that clock stopping demarcates, but I love the way it feels. Wait, I have a question. Um, When you say that Mrs. Appleyard killed Sarah, do you think she like threw her out the window? Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought that she just like said, you don't get to live here anymore. And then Sarah jumped. That's what I thought happened. Oh, am I stupid? No, I think it's interesting that, because this is, like, this is, I was remembering watching the movie, and I was like, this is yet another thing that we're being intentionally not shown. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we don't even see, like, um, like, Birdie tells Michael that he had a dream about his long-lost sister, Sarah, and, and that she said that she was going away and then left. Like, we don't see the dream. We could very well see a dream sequence in a movie. That happens. And we don't see Sarah die. We just hear other people find out, and it adds to this sense of, like, oh, there's more things we don't get to know. We do see Sarah's body in the greenhouse, mm-hmm. though. Yeah, um, we see her body, but we don't my, see her fall or get pushed. My, Yeah, I guess my my reason for thinking that, that Miss Appleyard kills her is that she tells her second-in-command that Sarah has left already, don't worry about her, she left early this morning, like, no need to no need to prep a seat for her at the table in a way that doesn't make sense. Like, Sarah, Sarah would have left that day, but she wouldn't have left sort of before sunrise. Mm-hmm. Like, basically, Mrs. Appleyard's explanation is like, oh, she was so upset, she, she left immediately. But that doesn't, that doesn't track with the character for me. Yeah, I thought that she was saying that because she had, like, 
either she was up drinking and heard Sarah jump, or she found the body earlier, oh. or she assumed she knew that was the inevitable consequence of what she was doing, and she like sort of figured out that was going to happen anyway. I could be wrong, though. It's it's unclear. I think it's unclear in the text. <laughs> I hope it's unclear in the text, because I don't like to uh, memorialize my being an idiot in a podcast. <laughs> but that, yeah, I think that's so cool that there's even a, a, a thing that we are not understanding right now <laughs> between us. Totally. I think I think the movie is is totally mysterious across the board. That's part of why I love it so much. I Every time I watch it, I think that I could go watch it again immediately. I'm just going to check the Wikipedia summary and see if there's a definite metatextual answer that somehow one of us missed. Because this has happened to me before. I've missed, like, something important. Well, that was more like when I was reading a play. I've, like, missed something that happens in the... Yeah, it's not clear. Simply that she is found dead. She's found dead. And it's the Wikipedia says that the French teacher assumes suicide, but we don't even know if that's true. Right. Because that's not in the text. Well, listeners, um, please please let us know what you think. Am I stupid? Or is is there an ambiguity there? Yeah, is this part of it? Sound off in the comments. We love comments. Rate, uh, you should uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts and just say what you think happened in <laughs> both on the rock and in the greenhouse. Five stars, non-negotiable, but mm -hmm. you can write whatever you want. And we'll read them out later and we'll have a, a follow-up discussion if we get enough of them. So come yeah. through with your thoughts. If you're a real asshole, your review might even make the podcast. <laughs> uh, this has been Watch Movies at the Bar. Our podcast has a twitter which is movie bar pod at movie bar pod our podcast has an instagram which is at movie bar underscore pod and we're fine with that that the two don't match <laughs> it doesn't keep us up at night like the thought of sarah's death we're fine we sleep fine and normal yeah i sleep great Bethy, where uh, where are you at on Twitter? Wait, I want to go back. Please, I, please. I had another note that I I remembered now when I was writing it because there's this one scene near the end where like Sarah has just been kicked out and Mrs. Appleyard is still up, like staring off into the distance. Michael is up staring off into the distance. Sarah is up staring off into the distance, and it was like, you know how sometimes the night is so laden with significance you can't sleep just because like the world has too much meaning. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've seen Donnie Darko. It was so relatable to me, that, that one moment of, like, oh, every night is a unique, is a, like, disgustingly unique event in natural history. It's, like, kind of, um, is it Camus or Sartre? There's some existentialist writer who talks about uh, realizing that every leaf on a tree exists as much as he does, and it makes him want to barf. <laughs> and I've had that experience every day of my life. And our uh, podcast cover art was made by Lindsay Therrell. We're back into the outro. <laughs> yeah, sometimes this is going to get existential. And other times we're going to talk about Ernest P. Worrell, baby. <laughs> Bethy, where can we find you on Twitter? I'm at BethyBSQU on Twitter. Thomas, where can we find you on Twitter? You can find me at, at handsome underscore pal. And who did our theme music? Uh, our theme music is by Quentin Mulligan, who does business as From Here, F-R-U-M. Really cool lo-fi shit. Highly recommend it. And our podcast is edited and produced by Colin Jenkins. Thank you, Colin. And as always, we give you our classic sign-off. Reside within the ambiguity, bitch. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. Mm -hmm.